0: So Holly, I've got an idea for our road trip. How about we do some Q&A from our Patreon members? What do you say? Do you think they're really going to like that? Probably not, but we need to give them more content so they get more bang for their buck in their Patreon membership. So I'll tell them where we're going. We're going to the Grand Canyon and turn around and we'll see what happens. But I've been brainstorming. A name for this set of Q&A Holly are you ready for it I finally think I came up with something clever all right hit me with it all right so we're going with our two dogs George and Genevieve they're in the back seat of the CRV and then Holly's driving right now but this is the name that I came up with doggy style colon a peek from behind dot 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 our route 66 road trip what do you think Holly
1: you've really outdone yourself this time Austin
0: so you get it we got two dogs so we'll call it doggy style and then a peak since we're both peaks we'll spell it p-e-e-k and then this is a route 66 road trip so it should be fun and that episode is out right now for all patreon members so just check your patreon feed And now, on to this episode.
1: But then again, after like a year, when things got better, when we were not thinking about going out of business every day, social life kicked in. Actually, I probably should not be telling you that because that's illegal, according to Belarusian law. Yeah, so let's start with how we approached building the product and bringing it to the market. That's going to get us to our first major mistake. My name is Mikita Mikado. I run a company called Panda Doc, and I'm based in San Francisco Bay Area. I live in Pacifica, and I work in San Francisco.
0: Where's Pacifica?
1: It's a small, cool, surf town southwest of San Francisco.
0: Do you travel back and forth from where you were born or no? Oh,
1: yeah. All the time I go to Belarus, where I'm from at least three times a year.
0: Okay, because I think that might have been where you were last time when we did the pre-interview. Tell us a little bit about Belarus, if people don't know where that is and what it's like, because we got people who listen across the world.
1: Sure thing. Belarus is a small country between Poland and Russia. It is a former Soviet state that got independence in 1991. It's a beautiful country with good people. It is a small country. I'm from the capital of Belarus, Belarus, the city of Minsk, which is a decent-sized city. About 2 million people live there. And how long did you live there for? All my life, almost. Well, the bigger part of my life. I moved to U.S. for the first time when I was 19, and I spent two and a half years in total in Hawaii. That's where I primarily lived. And then I moved back to Belarus and moved to States about five years ago. So I spent a total of seven and a half years in America and 23 and a half years back in Belarus.
0: And so you're 31 today. Sounds like you're 32, if I'm doing the math, right?
1: Uh, Well, it's crawling on me.
0: Yeah. You told us you CEO of PandaDoc. I don't think we jumped too much into it. So why don't you just explain a little bit more about PandaDoc and how you created it and and what it's all about?
1: Sure. PandaDoc is a software company that helps close to 10,000 businesses to streamline their work with the sales proposals, sales contracts, quotes, signatures, electronic signatures. And we launched the software about three and a half years ago. The company was started way before that. We had similar but slightly different product prior to PandaDoc, And that is my third software company. Started in San Francisco as well? Well, it was started in between Minsk and San Francisco. We built the product back in Belarus. And Belarus is a phenomenal place to find engineering talent and a lot of bright technical people. But when it comes to sales and marketing, like you got to realize that 80 years of communism are not helping when you need to market or sell things. For marketing and sales talent, it was a no-brainer to start an office where you got probably the best talent in the world.
0: And you're talking about developers, and I've heard this before because I've been speaking with a company that was based out of Romania. It seems like there's a lot of developers. Do you call that Eastern Europe still, or I'm not sure if that's Middle Europe or
1: what? Belarus is further east from Romania. So yeah, it is an Eastern European country.
0: Yeah, but do you find that with Romania as well? Or you said there's a lot of software talent or software developers in that area, right?
1: Yeah, any country that's going to have a very low average income and a decent number of of very smart people is aimed to have decent outsourcing software engineering scene, right? Romania, Belarus, Ukraine, Russia, to some extent, Argentina, there are a lot of great software engineers. in those. Oh, India. It makes sense, you know, and especially in Belarus when five months a year, you got pretty severe winter. There's nothing else to do. So what do you do? You know, you geek out, you read books, you code something and you don't have a lot of distraction. Uh, Your alternative is to, I don't know, go shuffle snow or something. (laughs) That's what I did. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, when you're a kid or in college, a lot of people choose STM jobs and majors because that is a way to make a decent living comparing to other alternatives. If you're a lawyer, you don't make money back in Belarus. Like if you're a doctor, it's really bad. If you're a software engineer, you make a decent living.
0: Okay. No, I think that's important because I never thought about that. That's why I'm glad I asked a question. It seems like it makes sense. What's the STM stand for when you're studying that in school?
1: Math and physics and exact sciences. Okay. I forgot how this abbreviation unfolds.
0: The main thing was I didn't know if they try to teach y'all that technology because it seems like it makes a lot of sense. As far as maybe 30 years ago, they didn't have as nearly as many as developers, and this is that opportunity where. Because of technology, the smart people are able, and it makes sense when you're saying it was cold most of the time, it's snowy. What else are you going to do other than shovel snow? And I didn't know about the doctors not making much money there or the lawyers, like you were saying.
1: Yeah. Technology was always huge in the Soviet Union, right? Got to remember which country was the first one to send anything to space and then to send a human being to space and so on and so forth. All that got somewhat obsolete after the collapse of the Soviet Union. A lot of people transitioned to other industries, and software engineering is one of the industries that probably benefited the most from the Soviet-like science school. A lot of people transitioned, and the school program was elementary, middle, high school program is very heavy on math and physics, again, like exact sciences. It's kind of like natural for people after they finish high school to go in that field because they have a decent foundation. The rockets aren't built as much anymore. So what do you do?
0: Well, what is it like growing up there? Because you're saying, was communism still an issue? You can only compare it to what you know. But for us, a lot of people who are listening are in America, and they have no idea what it's like.
1: Yeah, communism still existed when I was born. But I don't remember it because in 1986, which is the year when I was born, the Soviet Union started to transition to capitalism. By like 1992, 93, it was a, like all the countries that came out of the Soviet Union, they were, for the most part, they're all pure capitalism countries, like free market and stuff like that, to a fault in some cases. I'm sure you know that Russian natural resources were just split between very few people. So anyways, the country collapsed, right? The economy was in a terrible shape. You had to stay in line for hours to buy, let's say, something basic like toilet paper or a piece of meat or something. It was pretty bad. My mom had to support myself and my sister. She probably made about $100 a month. So it was not easy. And it was just pretty apocalyptic at the time, I would say. Crime was really high. Corruption was pretty bad, and it was not a pretty scene, you know. So all you and
0: your friends at that point just kind of interested in computers that age and thought that might be a way out, or is it you're just playing around with those for fun?
1: I was not into computers until I turned 11 or like 12 or something, because I didn't have one. My mom had one at her job, so I can sneak in sometimes, but... My choice was not to code, but to play games at the time, just to be completely honest. But my friends and I were doing it. <laughs> we, we washed cars. I had a an interesting business of picking up berries at my grandma's backyard and then <laughs> selling them on farmer's market. That's the kind of stuff that I did when I was a kid. I think around the time I was 12 or 13, I was able... Some computer parts I was gifted. Some I bought. Some I got free and I assembled a PC with a buddy of mine and I had a computer from that point and I started doing stuff on computer. Although, you know, I was very far from someone like Bill Gates who started a business and built something real that he started selling when he was a kid. We just played games and didn't do much. Let's put it that way, on the computer.
0: The entrepreneur side of you are still trying to do other things. You're saying like sell berries? Do you want to go in a little bit more
1: detail about that? Yeah. So my grandpa used to grow a lot of red currants to turn them into wine. And that wine, the wine got him tipsy too many times a day. So my grandma was not cool about it. And she was like, why don't we start selling those berries? We got too many. But no one wanted to do it in the family because selling was not a respectable thing to do for Soviet people. I mean, back in 1960s and 70s, you resell some product, you get in jail for that. It was a speculation. It was not a cool thing to do. No one wanted to do it but me. What I did, I teamed up with my grandma. She helped me to pick the berries up. And then they drove me to the farmer's market. And I was sitting selling those buckets with berries. My first day was terrible. It didn't go very well. Then I picked a bucket with the berries and I went to a bus stop where the food traffic was pretty high and there, there was no competition. And I sold that thing within an hour or something. So I picked up another bucket and that's how I started selling. I started sitting on the bus stop and either people were keen to buy from a kid or top of the funnel, a lot of food traffic helped me out. I don't know which one was that, but I was selling berries pretty well. I uh, was able to keep some of the money, right? My grandma split the money in half and I was able to buy stuff. And that felt good. So I doubled down. And at some point, I was probably selling as much as what my mom was making a month with a real job. So yes, that was great. That was a great experience. So was your mom working the whole time? Or was she excited as well? Oh, everyone was excited. You know, it's like, there's a kid that brings money in as well as does something good, right? I had to work for those beers, had to pick them up. And then to uh, spend my weekends on the farmer's market. They were proud. They were very happy.
0: Yeah. Well, I wanted to make sure because you had said, and I guess I could see that for them if they were older, that they weren't used to selling because of the communism thing. So that's good that they saw that
1: in you. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it was not like a bad thing to do. It was just not a cool thing. Basically, I guess my mom or my grandma wouldn't want their friends to see that they're selling on the farmer's market. But like probably with lemonade stands. If you're an adult and you got to do lemonade stands. (laughs) Right, yeah. (laughs) It's kind of, you know.
0: Yeah, if my neighbor's selling lemonade right now outside, then it's kind of not cool. But it's all right if the kid's doing it. So I get you.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think the dynamic was something similar to that.
0: Mm -hmm. You got to be around 18 and decided you wanted to go to the U.S. to pursue more entrepreneurship?
1: Yeah, yeah. So by that time, I had a a bunch of uh, different (laughs) micro-businesses or gigs going on and I always wanted to be able to build things, you know, build businesses, do something meaningful and be rewarded for it. I always had a lot of ideas on how I can create something or make money and I thought that America is the best place for it. So after a year in Belarusian University, actually two years in Belarusian Computer Science University, I got an opportunity to to join the student exchange program, jump on the plane and spend a summer in the U.S. I invested everything I had in the plane ticket and accommodation in the U.S., which were crazy expensive. And I, I did it. And that was a very good decision.
0: Hopefully that helps. I feel like I came at least a little bit more helpful at the end there. No, I, I do. I think it helps. And like I said, it's like going to see a psychiatrist talking about your problems in life. You're like, we're talking with you about our <laughs> problems in business and startups. So, I mean, when we vocalize it, and we talk, something else will enter our brains. And, and we're like, OK, yeah, there it is. Nice. Well, I appreciate it, Dr. Rock. And so you went to
1: Hawaii straight from there? Yeah, they placed me there. I didn't choose Hawaii. I didn't really have a choice. But yeah, I was placed to work in Honolulu Airport. There is a deli there where I was flipping burgers. That was my first job in the U.S.
0: That's almost on the exact opposite side of the world. It seems like, and especially weather for you. It sounds like, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, it was <laughs> in the very beginning. I didn't really see a lot of difference because to make your money back, plane ticket was seventeen hundred bucks, and the uh, minimum wage in Hawaii at the time was something like seven dollars. So to make your money back, I had to work sixteen hours a day. <laughs> like you work indoors, so there isn't much of the difference. <laughs> right. But yeah, you know, like sometimes in the weekends we got out and. Hawaii is a phenomenally beautiful place, so different from Belarus from every perspective, so diverse, so I loved it. So at what
0: point did you start thinking about doing more of your own business instead of flipping burgers? At any point. But when did you start pursuing it? I guess you're probably thinking about it every minute, every flip of those burgers.
1: Yeah, I started pursuing all kinds of different ideas. I don't know how, maybe a week after I arrived or maybe two weeks later, but very soon. I've done. I had a cleaning business, didn't last long. But I had a moving business, which also didn't last very long. I also purchased like DJ equipment and shipped it back to Belarus. There were a lot of activities to help to basically make a buck and pay for college. I was doing all of that while trying to get what I specialized in, what, what my major was, which was software engineering, and I started with. Designing websites and building websites. It takes time to build clientele and just get on top of Google, blah, blah, blah. So uh, it took me time. While I was getting on top of Google, I had to do all kinds of things, right?
0: You're saying you're trying to get on top of Google. So are you just trying to be an SEO guy in Hawaii? What happened from there?
1: So, yeah, so I did everything from SEO to paid acquisition and actual building of websites from design to software engineering. When the volume of business was high enough. I started contracting people. Some of them were in Belarus, some of them were in US, but basically I stopped doing more of the uh, kind of like technical back office work and transitioned more into working with clients and close deals and making sure they're happy.
0: Yeah. Were all those clients in Hawaii or where were they? What type of website or niche that you're in?
1: Yeah. So first they were all in Hawaii, but then my current co-founder, Pandadox co-founder and I we partnered up on a few of those uh, web development projects. And at some point, we built a couple of extensions for a content management system called .NET Nuke. It's just a web content management system, uh, kind of like WordPress or, I don't know, Magento or whatever. And uh, we put them online, and those things started selling uh, without us really talking to those clients. And that was like two years after I moved to Hawaii. Then it was clear, okay, I can scale this, like, Web design services development business to maybe like a couple of employees and at the time I, I don't know maybe a few hundred thousand a month or something. But a software business is something I can scale way beyond that. So back my suitcase and I moved back to Belarus where I hired all of my former classmates and my uh, co-founder Sergey and I. He was the CTO. I was the CEO. We started a company called Coding Staff which specialized in building those extensions and then driving business through the extensions. And to your point, yeah, it was a niche. In that niche, we by just establishing a technical expertise, technical domain, we, we had clients like Microsoft or, you know, the government of Montenegro that thought we were much bigger than we really were.
0: Tell us about like hiring those classmates. Like how do you go about that and how did you have money to do that? Especially when you were in Hawaii. How you were hiring them while well, they were back in Belarus. That so seems like it might be a little bit complicated. Uh, it wasn't, actually. You just paid them on PayPal or something? Yeah.
1: PayPal, cash, sometimes. The Bitcoins were not around. Or were they? I wish I knew if they were.
0: <laughs> you wish you bought some back
1: then? <laughs> yeah, just like anyone. That wasn't a hard part because those guys were all my friends and we knew each other. And say my co-founder, Sergey, the guy who I built PandaDoc with, he played drums and I played bass for two years in the same band. We knew each other pretty well.
0: Yeah, would you get money from clients then?
1: That wasn't hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I want to say it was something like if you pay 30% for the project up front, maybe 50%, and then you pay the remaining amount once the project is done. And you have to realize that you know the cost of doing business in Belarus is significantly lower. Like The average salary of an engineer today is something like $1,700 per month. So the margins are pretty high, right? As long as you know how to work with our market and interact with the culture, which is not that different from the U.S. Like it's actually not different at all. There is a way to kind of like start small, start on a very low budget, very small capital infusion. And I got that capital by just doing stuff myself and building websites myself and not spending much.
0: Well, how much did you have like saved up before you moved back to Belarus? Because it seems like before is almost like freelancing work. And then when you moved back to Belarus is when you became more of a company. So how much did you have saved
1: up when you did that? I want to say about, yeah, like $20,000, something like that. I hired my former classmates, which were fourth year in university. So it was a, was a discount in from the average engineering salary from Belarus. Maybe like the average was like 1000 bucks a month. That's where we paid maybe like 800 bucks a month and $20,000 is sufficient. Maybe I didn't have less. Like, you know, maybe I had like 10, 15. I don't really remember. And did you move back home when you moved back? Seems like an interesting transition. Now, I don't know if you
0: were happy to move back when you're from Hawaii, and then I just want to talk about like setting up a business in another country because, yeah. like I said, most of us won't go through that experience, and so I think that's pretty cool.
1: Sure, sure. So I've run this business out of my one-bedroom apartment, which I rented for my aunt. Like I paid her maybe like, 100 bucks a month i slept in the same room where we had desks and that lasted for about let's say eight nine months then we got a two-bedroom apartment in a better location in the city i had a place to sleep and work and that was not the same place that was great (laughs) however actually one of our project managers still lived in that bedroom apartment just easier for him Anyway, and then from that we moved to a three-bedroom apartment which was much nicer and bigger And then from a three-bedroom apartment, actually, I probably should not be telling you that because that's illegal, according to Belarusian law. But anyways, uh, from that room to a a, a, a real office.
0: Well, so when you're talking, you had like three bedrooms. So did you have like you and like one roommate and then the extra room, you would have three people working in there at the
1: same time? By the time we had a three-bedroom apartment, it was like all the three bedrooms were dedicated to work. And then this Lithuanian guy was just, there was this inflatable mattress, which he, Turned on after like eight o'clock and that's where he slept. It means it was time for you
0: all to go once he started blowing that thing up?
1: Yeah. <laughs> we laugh about it a lot. We're still friends. We got a, a great job. a senior uh, manager at a like a 500 employee software company. It was a great time. We had a lot of fun and I remember it and kind of like as a time with a lot of fun. We had to do a lot of work. It was very difficult, but it was fun.
0: So, you're 21, 22, it sounds like, at this point. What's the lifestyle like there in Belarus? I mean, are you going out on the weekends and stuff? Just again, because you're coming from a transition country from communism, I didn't know if there's much social life as
1: well. Yeah. I think in the beginning, both in Hawaii, say, like when I started the uh, web design business in Hawaii, when I just moved there, I didn't really have a social life, to be frank. It was all work. And then I also had to study in parallel in distantly in the Belarusian Computer Science University and I had to study in Hawaii, study I had to learn English and take a few other classes. So I didn't really have a social life. But when the business got better, maybe like after a year and a half, I started to do less of the kind of like work in terms of the development and yada yada yada. So I had a little bit of time. Then I started surfing. I and my life I started to have some social life back in Hawaii, and it was great. I loved it. I spent at least an hour a day playing volleyball or surfing. And it was great. And then when I moved to Belarus, same story, first year, not much of the social life, right? Belarus is 10 hours ahead of U.S., so your clients wake up right when the social life starts. Right, right. yeah. So you don't really have a social life. But then again, after like a year when things got better when we were not thinking about going out of business every day social life kicked in and then after like two three years the money started to come in as well and when the money started to come in i mean you basically can buy a lot more for one dollar in belarus than here in us then it got really fun so does that answer your question yes it does well he says it gets really fun what does that mean I don't know. To
0: Let's see. Are you buying toys? Or are you going out to the bars and clubs? Are you just buying new computers? What are you doing?
1: Actually, all of that you mentioned. Then <laughs> traveled and my mid-20s were really fun. Well, then
0: let's talk about you. So it seems like everything's going well up to this point. You're 25 years old, a few years in Belarus after you established a company everything has been going up and well. So did you transition your company? Because it was named something else, and then you switch it to PandaDoc and went down a different avenue? Like, Tell us about yeah that transition.
1: So at some point, we hit the ceiling, or I would say we started to foresee that the ceiling is coming within the next few years. We were limited by the platform that we built extensions for. I wouldn't say that the ecosystem we were in was... Growing crazily, so we had like 400 products at the time. And when this Doctor new thing changed something, say 50 of them stopped working. But we relied on someone else, and that someone else didn't always do a very good job around its APIs or messaging to its partners, what's happening, and so on and so forth. So in the middle of the night, like at least twice a month, our entire company had to wake up, deal with a bunch of fires. So. We decided that it's time to move on and do something bigger, greater, more interesting, more challenging. And we were inspired by a company, a team out of Chicago called 37 Signals. They published a really good book at the time called Rework. Prior, we were reading their blog. We wanted to build something similar, a software that we can control, not someone else, but, you know, we're in charge of, that is delivered over your web browser. So the the term SaaS, <laughs> it was not big in Belarus at the time. We just wanted to build a software that is delivered over the web browser, that's easy to use, that's not clunky. That's how Panadoc's predecessor came about. It was a product called Quilt Thriller, and then Panadoc followed on.
0: Again, you wanted to make that transition while you're figuring that out because y'all got tired of relying on these other people. Your plugins break and then people get mad at you.
1: Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. It was a high-stress business, and we were not learning anything. We were not growing. So we basically decided to find the new management for this business and start something new.
0: Yeah. How many people were in that business? For each switch over, I'm just going to call the new company the PandaDoc predecessor. We'll just call it PandaDoc right now, I guess.
1: Sure, sure. That's that's cool. Yeah, we were at about 35 employees at the time. Did they all come with you to PandaDoc? no. Uh, some did, but the new product was built on a different technology stack. We had to hire other people, other development talent. Did you sell the old company, or are you still
0: you and partner still owning that company?
1: Well, we sold it, but the story was that first of all, like we were pretty clueless with kind of like what we're doing. <laughs> we didn't know that we can actually sell the business. We just have to start. Selling it. So what we did instead is we hired a CEO for this company. We were like, we had a 30% margin when we did that. And then the year later, we had a 30% loss. So <laughs> unfortunately things didn't pan out, but the worst part was that the team was really frustrated with what was going on. Those were my co-founders and my friends, former classmates. We. They worked their ass off to get the company up and running so we basically did it afterwards we fired that ceo and we offered them to just take over the company start running it and over time buy it that's what happened we sold it to you know our former employees sold for very little but i think that was the right thing to do considering that the guy's helped us build this business they they're sweat blood and tears in it and then with the new management things were, went pretty uh, sideways. So we just wanted to save it and we wanted for it to exist, you know, to be alive. This was like four years of our life.
0: Well, I thought it was a lot more intimate than I thought it was gonna be. Like anyone who's thinking about doing it, you'll be able to, to get involved, ask a question, you know, which, I don't have a lot of experience with other group calls, but I would assume that there's kind of a hierarchy to it. But this one, if you're in there, you're going to get your shot to ask an expert a question. So I tried to compare my group calls. I started joining random entrepreneur groups and just joining their group calls and try to see what they're like. Dude, the one you were on and all of them have kind of gone that way. They're all 10x better than any other group I've been in because become a member to find out. Was there anything we could learn from you hiring that CEO and maybe why he didn't get along? Was he the same age as y'all? Because I imagine everyone was in their mid-20s.
1: Yeah, much older. But yeah, I don't think age is is nothing to be worried about. I think there is a lot to be learned from that. First is when it comes to decisions like this, decisions of that magnitude and with so many implications, you have to get a 100% buy-in, not just from the founding or management team, but also from pretty much every single person within the company, then, and, and it's obvious now, but you have to look at people's track record. And if there were any cases where things kind of like went sideways, you can't just sort of say, trust that someone who is not intimately familiar with your business is going to turn it into something magical without a lot of hand holding. Sometimes it's required. So a lot was learned and it's been a while back, so maybe I forgot it all. <laughs>
0: Oh, at least you brought some generic points up. So I think that's good. I think your story is really cool because it's different. So that's why we're kind of talking about it in stages a little bit more than maybe I would some other guests. But it's also learning those little things that you've done now looking back that hopefully the people listening don't make the same mistake. Yeah. This is the main thing. So,
1: Although, you know what? I think <laughs> I think I made the same exact mistakes over and over again. So just just to be perfectly clear like, <laughs> and honest.
0: Right. Well, then we can learn a lot won't do anything you do. So that's important. That's why we have guests like you.
1: Yeah. yeah. I'm joking. Thank
0: you. <laughs> right, so it was a joke, but obviously it did not translate well. But you're switching over into the new Panda Doc. Are you still in the same office space too? And just tell us about what that transition was like and how much money you needed to start
1: that. Uh, yes, yeah, so we start in a doc. We invested about $150,000 in starting that business. Actually, a little more than that. It was close to $200,000. It was about $100,000 each. At the time, we were already sitting in a nice office and all, and it was more professional.
0: Than the apartment? Than the three-bedroom apartment?
1: Yeah. Than the one-bedroom apartment where I had to sleep as well. So,
0: Right. So you had hundred k to put into this, especially because you said you were in Belarus. You weren't scared about that because it seems like that would be 10 years worth of money or something for some people who live there.
1: Yeah, you're right, actually. You're estimating right. But... If kind of like retiring young was gold the goal, then we'd probably just do that. But that was not the goal. The goal was to learn, make some kind of impact on the world, on people around us, on ourselves, and uh, also have fun. So, yeah, so we decided to take on a new challenge.
0: No, that sounds good. I guess I'm just trying to put it in perspective because maybe some people might not think that's a lot in America. But especially when you're there, that's still a lot in America. If you ask me, but it's just at that age and making that decision, some people might just after they've made some money, some people either like spend it all or maybe they save it all and they're scared to use it again because they've after they've made it, especially whenever, I guess you didn't know at the time, but the other company started going south, right? When you said it lost 30%, but yeah, let's just talk about a little bit more about Panda Duck. What was your game plan? How did you execute? Did you make money the first year? Let's talk dive a little bit deeper into the business aspect.
1: Yeah, so let's start with how we approached building the product and bringing it to the market. That's going to get us to our first major mistake. (laughs) We thought we're going to build it and they will come. And that didn't quite happen. I had to start doing quite a bit of online marketing and so on and so forth. But even after that was done, they did come, but they weren't quite the right persona for our product. So we screwed up quite a few times. However, the, the further you go, the more you learn and better you become. anything. I think we got our like 10,000 hours, as as they say, that's what you need to get decent at anything. I think I got decent at online marketing and inbound marketing. And my co-founder got really good at honing the product and building the right thing. So we started to work on the first iteration of PandaDoc, which was called differently, but it doesn't matter. In October, we launched it in March. It was free. We thought we're going to turn on payments and people are going to start paying us around August. That didn't happen. We were upset for a couple of weeks. And then we started iterating and took a second swing at it. And then around, I want to say, March next year, we started to see like a real traction. Maybe we're doing some like $5,000 a month in recurring revenue by the time. But then 5,000 quickly became 10,000, then 10,000 became 20,000, then 30,000, and so on and so forth. So, after the first year, how much did you end up making? First year, enough to buy a lunch in San Francisco, maybe. The second year, it was some like 100K, maybe like 200K. And then the third year, it was much better than that. It was close to a million dollars. At some point,
0: as you mentioned, when we first started, you decided to go back to the States. Was there a reason for that during this part we talked about sales earlier but why leave belarus at some point in time
1: yes yeah, so when we were at about like twenty thousand dollars in monthly recurring revenue and growing at like 10 15 a month it was clear that there's a market that there's a use case that we can streamline the quote to cash workflow that we have a very unique and very interesting approach at solving A bunch of problems that exist within this workflow. There is a path to a $100 million business. So that was another kind of like calling. Okay, let's raise money. Let's go big. That's when I packed my suitcase and moved.
0: So that was about four years into that company. That's when you decided it was time? Yeah, I want to say three
1: years. Okay. I want to say we were 20K a month, two and a half years maybe after we started to work on PandaDoc. Maybe two years, something like that.
0: And you're talking about revenue. What was like your profit margins at that point in time?
1: We've, uh, <laughs> I don't remember, honestly. Austin, I don't remember. Are you talking like 50% or 10%? Yeah, typically we had this like pot with $200,000 and the pot was going lower and lower and lower and lower as we were investing in developing the product. But then it was just going lower slower as the revenue started to kick in. And then we raised money. We raised $650,000. So things got a lot easier.
0: I mean, at this point in time, were you excited? It seems like it'd be living the dream to try to, after you raise that money and going back to America, or were you, I guess you had your family in Belarus, but didn't really get to talk about that. You mentioned your sister. I mean, I don't know what your contact was like with them or your friends when you had to come back to America again, if you were excited about doing that.
1: Yeah, I was excited about going back to America. I had a real opportunity to build something meaningful and create something that can make an impact. I moved with my wife, and she was pregnant at the time, so there was an opportunity for my kid to get two passports instead of one, so I definitely... So you had to go for it? Yeah, like a hell of a deal. I need a visa anywhere I go, you know? That's the beauty of Belarusian passports, like, you want to go to, I don't know, like anywhere, you need a visa. You need a visa to make any move, and if you have American passport, you only need a visa to go to maybe like Iran, and I have no plans to go there, so...
0: You're not hiring developers there? No.
1: You already get your hookups in Belarus. Yeah. Well, maybe I'm going to be working on a nuclear bomb. I will. Yeah. But that's something you guys are worried about, not me. <laughs> well, you're one of our
0: guys now that you live here. so.
1: <laughs> you're right. You're right. I should get used to it.
0: <laughs> yeah. All right. So, yeah, you come back to America. Then how about your co-founder? Does
1: he come with you? He moved about two and a half years later. He's been here for two and a half years.
0: How's that communication work like between y'all during that point in time?
1: Well, it's so hard. Like communication gets harder and harder and harder when your team grows and uh, when you have multiple multiplications, it just gets harder. That's always on agenda. And what helped me and my co-founder is that we had a very long, last history. And you know, we're friends we have known each other for a long time. Otherwise, I don't know. I'm not an easy guy to work with necessarily. I don't know how he did it. <laughs> he did it somehow. <laughs> Yeah. Why do you think you're not an easy guy to work with? Sometimes too passionate about things. Sometimes too emotional. Sometimes I can go on and on, but like, you're not my counselor. So I don't know if I should do that.
0: <laughs> no, I, well, no one's listening. So don't worry about it. Right. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> These are those things that, hey, what happens if I do have a co founder and he moves and he's a 10 hour time zone away? Hopefully, that's something we could learn from you. Could you tell us what didn't work? So if we do have those virtual co-founders or maybe even we have a virtual assistant that lives half a world away, maybe different ideas on what could work or would be a better way to stay in communication.
1: Totally. So first of all, when you work with someone remotely, you have to over communicate. It's expected. It needs to happen. You have to over communicate and they have to over communicate. It is very, very important. And whenever you can document something, or visualize something, be that a mock-up or like a design or the presentation doesn't really matter. You got to utilize something like that. You absolutely have to utilize something like that because it tremendously helps to deliver the message across. You have to be positive because whenever there is a difficult conversation, right, you got to realize that your body language or you can't go have a beer after that difficult conversation because you're thousands of miles apart. So the Communicating with uh, remote employees and partners is—it's the next level shit. Like it's harder, but it could be done, and it could be done really well. And that gives numerous businesses a very strong edge.
0: Well, because how do you
1: do it now? Because you still have people in Belarus who work for you, right? Yeah. So we have ninety people in Belarus. We have more people in Belarus than in the U.S. Yeah. How many in the U.S.? Seventy.
0: Okay. Yeah. So how do you do that? Because I think that's going to be more of an issue over next 10 or 20 years. I think more people are going to be working with people from across the world. I know I have assistants that are in the Philippines, but I'm always trying to learn how I can better communicate or, you know, should you set up scheduled meetings every week or say every two weeks or what's been working for you all to stay together?
1: So let's just go over the list. Number one, we fly people to U.S. and we fly Americans to Belarus. Both are hugely important. I'll give you a few examples. When, uh say, the cultures are different, right? And uh sometimes when Americans talk to Eastern Europeans, they're like, why are those guys so mean? Like, why are they so, like, what? They never smile, blah, blah, blah. But then you have to fly to Belarus to see when the weather is five months of winter and, like, three months of fog or something. It's only natural that people smile less. And in fact, like, when people are smiling, in Eastern Europe that means something. And when they're smiling in Los Angeles, it means nothing. So so like so you start kinda of like understanding that the fact that you get a direct message back or the fact that someone doesn't want to have a small talk before they get to business is just a cultural thing and you start accepting it. So flying people back and forth and getting them fully immersed in, in the culture helps a lot, a ton.
0: I noticed the lack of smiling in your LinkedIn profile picture as well.
1: Yeah. You know, I killed someone didn't to, <laughs> to take the photo. So what do you expect? But uh, that,
0: that... you're staring at me right now and it's scaring me. I'm like, I have to minimize LinkedIn every time I bring it back up because I'm like, he might kill me. Okay. I'm, I just re-minimized it. Keep going.
1: <laughs> My comrades just found your location. So be careful. Now you're scaring me because I believe you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, So that's one thing. Another thing is we try to dabble down on documenting processes, initiatives, projects, so that more stuff is accessible and available to everyone 24-7. We rely heavily on things like Google Docs or you know, Trello or what kinds of project management systems, you know, Jira for, for the product team, Zoom for calls. We've set up a regular cadence of calls and meetings for the entire company. All of the data, all of the information about our business is open and transparent for everyone on the team. You're an assistant. You can look at our MRR and churn, and you will know the key priorities for the business. It has a very big impact on communication, and that is to set big, big, audacious initiatives and themes And let people to come up with their own projects and their own ideas based on those, based on kind of like umbrella themes. Can you give us an example? Yeah, like for instance, we have four key themes for this year for PandaDoc. Number one is customer value. We're improving our understanding of the ideal customer profile, of the right segments for us to attack, and the right value that our products should bring to these customers. And uh, people start their own projects and initiatives, and within that umbrella, right? Someone says, like, well, we should uh, start looking at the NPS. And we launched NPS, the promoter scoring within the product. Someone else says, well, we should. Uh, and those people own those initiatives. They care about them truly, and they they drive them. So that communication happens not just kind of like top down or bottom up, but it's horizontal. Another theme is the cost structure. Typically it's a very sensitive thing, right? We are honing in the unit economics for, for our business model and cut costs in some areas and invest more in others. And again, like a lot of individuals on the team take initiative and run projects that matter. Those are the a couple of examples of, of that kind of stuff prior, like in 2000. 17 we had a trial to value initiative where we tried to maximize the value that every prospect extracts from our product we tried to shrink the amount of time that's needed in order for that to happen so that was everything from you know sales team calling on leads faster to customer success team helping new clients to onboard a product team improving the product product ux usability Those are just, again, like a few examples for you to make this thing more tangible. So, yeah, so that helps. And then having a little bit of every function in every office is another thing that we try to push for because it helps to prevent departmental silo.
0: I could definitely see that. Because then it seems like versus if it was all developers, I guess you're saying in Belarus, you have a mix
1: versus what I just said, right? Yeah. You know, we're still struggling finding great sales talent in Belarus. But we're working on it, I think we'll succeed at some point.
0: Yeah. What's been the best part about growing your business so far?
1: The best part is that the bigger this company gets, the more I learn and the more impact it has on the world, on our clients and our employees. And as a result, the more fun it becomes.
0: Yeah, even maybe the most fun it might be helping those people in Belarus or your friends get those jobs. It would seem like.
1: Yeah, we're trying to bring Silicon Valley to Belarus. It's pretty normal to like have cool offices and yoga and meditation sessions in Silicon Valley software companies, you know, <laughs> during the breaks and stuff like that. It's not common in Belarus.
0: You're just trying to teach them how to smile over in Belarus, or what? Yeah. <laughs> A little bit. If you can make him smile, then that's good enough. Yeah,
1: but actually, if you think about it, our business requires highly cognitive activities. You got to think a lot and you can't think well when you're tired or scared or sort of say below the line. So there's a reason why Google has such a badass campus with everything on it. The reason is to help people while they're overloading their brain to help them to balance it and just do better be happier because you can't be really good at highly cognitive tasks if you're not happy becoming a patron was something that i was always like i'm going to do it i'm going to do it and i was delaying it for whatever reason and the other day i was like okay i'm, I'm going to do it and uh, and that's it so i'm very happy with it
0: nice well thank you for joining so was there anything holding you back
1: it was just uh, taking the time to do it
0: Gotcha. Well, thank you for taking the time to do it. So um, where are you located?
1: Here in Bolivia, in South America.
0: Cool. Well, I think you're our first Patreon member from South America. So thanks for that again. And um, I don't know if you just saw, I just upped the group calls from once a month to twice a month. So I think that's actually where probably you'll get the most value of the membership personally. Doing the group calls, you guys get to actually, you know, ask our past guests questions, and I'm just there to facilitate it. So what do you see for the future of your company? And then the last thing is why you're thinking about that feature, maybe you can put in perspective too, maybe one point that the people who are listening, entrepreneurs or soon to be entrepreneurs who are listening, maybe one thing that they could remember from your story that they could use in the future.
1: I think, you know, if a kid from like a third world country can learn how to sell and build a business in America every american can do the same exact thing it just takes a lot of time and effort whatever that is you do as long as you do it long enough and you do it hard enough and you always iterate sort of say like failing short term learning from it but then keep going long term then something good is going to come out of it whatever it is you know i believe is that as long as you work hard and you keep iterating and you keep an open mind Something good is going to come out of it and you'll always be rewarded. So that's honestly my like motto, right? <laughs> is that the motto? Can you call it a motto?
0: Yeah, your motto. Because people don't get have to see how hard you actually have to work. We talk about it. It's been a fun journey listening to yours thus far. But I think maybe a lot of people just don't work hard enough. I don't know if you do You think the same thing. Yeah. Well, especially if, if they're from America where it should be much easier than a story such as yours or if you have to travel over here and take care of business it's like i think maybe instead of complaining or maybe just using your head and working hard usually can get you there
1: honestly yeah like some people do not work hard enough there's a case for that some people work really really hard but they don't iterate there's a pretty interesting study and a book i would recommend called peak performance that talks about not just work hard, but also take rests and sort of say stretch yourself and bring new challenges and iterate and change. Because there are a lot of really working people that just do the same exact thing, even if that thing does not work. I have friends that put so much work and so much effort into something that is clearly not working. But. I don't know. Either they're afraid to try something different or take a step back or to say, look, it doesn't work. I failed. It's fine. It's okay to fail. I just have to learn something from it and take a little rest. And then with a new energy that I just saved up, crush something different, you know, something new. And you know, that's tough because like you don't want to get burnt out and do something forever. At the same time, you don't want to give up too fast. So finding that balance is is really hard.
0: And for you, I'm just trying to think for your balance, because every person's different. You can work hard and shovel snow, be working hard and just not thinking. It's obviously kind of doing some of both. I think a lot of people just maybe I'm lucky enough that I don't think I have to use my brain that much. But it's just like, for me, if something's not working, then I stop and try something else. Maybe enough people don't do that. But I think the other point is that maybe a a lot of people just aren't working as hard. And if you just go a little bit 10% harder, or 10% further on your project or whatever you're working on at your work, at your nine to five, maybe you'll actually start seeing results. Cause then when you work hard enough, then you can find out what's actually working or not working. Yeah. I guess is kind of the point. Yep. 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 I mean, I don't know. Maybe you disagree with that, but that's what I was trying to get from what you were saying there at the end. You got to try, You got to try. Well, with that said, we appreciate you coming and sharing your story. If someone wanted to say thank you for doing the interview or wanted to like reach out to you, what's the best way for them to do that?
1: I'm fairly social, so either that is LinkedIn. I'm easy to be found there. He's not smiling uh, in his picture, so you yeah, can easily yeah. find it. Mean face. Just just look for for the meanest face on LinkedIn. Black and white picture. You know what? Goatee. Yeah, I'm, I'm probably gonna like pick a smiling picture now. Now that you pointed it out, because like apparently it's to Belarusian now. But yeah, (laughs) let's see. LinkedIn, I'm not very active on Twitter. I don't find myself that important to tweet. I don't know. (laughs) Do you think they should just hit you up on LinkedIn as
0: a message or what? What's the best way? Yeah, 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 yeah. I think that's the best way. Yeah. Maybe his picture will change by the time this airs and we'll put a picture his newest picture as the picture for the podcast so you all can find him. (laughs) Sounds good. All right. Great. Well, thank you for coming on and sharing your story. My pleasure, Austin. Thank you. All right. Y'all good? Yeah.
1: Cool. How do you think it went? Great. I mean, how do you think it went? Like, you're the pro here.
0: I think it went well. I was trying to get your point right. Maybe it sounded like I didn't get it right, but it sounded like you are saying that maybe people need to work hard. Maybe I was saying from my perspective that you were talking about being coming from a third world country and working hard and being able to do it. And I just think that with your ability to do that, maybe a lot of people in America don't think about that. I mean, I think about that a lot. That's kind of what inspired me to start the podcast is that I'd hear stories like yours of like someone who would come from another country and works their butt off. And the reason that they got to the position was because they work. I think a lot of people like, at least in America, to me, like to talk about working versus working but probably not the people who listen to this podcast, because if they listen to this podcast, it's obviously they want to learn and they're trying to grow. So I guess I'm throwing a generality out of maybe the most American work ethic.
1: Yeah, you know, I I see both to be quite frank, like it's amazing how diverse this country is, because you got like, for whatever, like someone too religious or someone too atheistic, someone too fat or someone too skinny, like someone working too hard, Someone not working hard enough. Like, right. you got them all in America. This is what I like about this country. It's like so diverse. You got everything.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's understandable. I appreciate you coming on and spending time and sharing the story.
1: My pleasure, Austin. Thanks for having me. That was a pleasure. All right, man. You have a good day.
0: You too. Take care. Hey there, mother effer. You looking for more tech-based interviews? If so, here's five more recommendations for you to check out. Try episode 198 with Jim Warner, or episode 79 with Brad Martineau. Another one, episode 195 with Howard Gottlieb. Number four is episode 71 with Jordan Gal of Carthook. And last but not least, episode 180 with Diana Goodwin of AquaMobile. Oh, and if you feel like helping us keep this podcast going, then consider becoming a Patreon member. Hope you enjoy those tech-based interviews, and to become a Patreon member, just check your episode notes below.